Thanks for listening to show 10 of the CIPR Social Media Panel C-Suite podcast. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and joining me in studios of broadcast communication specialists Marketeers for DC to discuss this week's topic of paid social is Farhad Kudaruth, our Managing Director of 3Pipe. And also on the line, we've also got Vicky Chelney, Director of Content and Publishing Strategies at H&K Strategies. Now, as usual, please do tweet any comments you have whilst uh, you're listening to the show using the hashtag hash CIPR C-Suite. And rather than doing my plugs at the end of the show, just a quick reminder now to subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for CIPR Social Media in the iTunes Store, and that will help us up the iTunes podcast charts. So for the benefit of some of our listeners, Vicky, perhaps uh, you can kick us off by defining what we mean by paid social, but also what I'd like to know if you is, is whether or not you think um, sort of paying to amplify reach is taken into account um, in practice by the majority of PR practitioners who have a content strategy in place for their organisation. Um, so in terms of defining paid social, I guess when we talk about paid social, what we're referring to is any of the kind of commercial or advertising options on social platforms. So if you think about Twitter as an example, anything where you're paying to have a promoted trend or you're using any of their kind of targeted promoted tweets or accounts, though the things that you pay for is what we refer to when we mean paid social. Okay, and do, and do you think that some PR practitioners are, are getting involved in this now? I think that if, um, well, regardless of PR, if you have a remit of looking after social content, then yeah. yes. Um, I, I really would be very surprised if anyone who's creating social content is not aware of the importance of paid amplification and is has kind of a strategy behind the scenes to deal with that. Um, but if you're given a, a remit of just broad content marketing, perhaps not so much. Um, if you're looking at it through a kind of PR filter, you're probably more aware of um, paid activities working with publishers or native advertising than you are mm. paid social. Okay. Well, well, we'll come on to the sort of strategic aspect of it um, in, in a little while. But Farhad, um, 3 Piper are doing a lot of work in this area. And you actually presented one of your case studies at uh, one of the recent social media panels, um, Hack Days, back, back in uh, February. It's for the NatWest T20 Blast Cricket mm -hmm. campaign. Yep. Um, my fear, though, is that there's still a lack of knowledge about, you know, how small a percentage of followers are reached by social media posts, um, particularly in Facebook and, and Twitter. Vicky just mentioned Twitter just then. So could you sum up how you think or why you think it's so important, um, but maybe give us a quick overview of the impact it had on that particular campaign that, that you presented? Sure. So I think that the, the key thing really is looking at the, the social platforms and the way that they're developing. So things like organic reach on Facebook are in the single-digit percentages, um, although video is slightly better from, from re recent research. Um, but what you're starting to find in, in the reality about these organisations is they're all well-funded, IPO'd and have a need to make money. So you can see increasingly from where Facebook is definitely the most developed from a you almost have to pay for everything all the time perspective to Twitter, to Pinterest and all the others are moving in that direction. And so what we're often finding is, is that when we're using paid tactics, it's very much about how we can expand out the reach of what we've got. A lot to do with T20 and, and sport is actually also about timeliness. We want to control when that message goes out there, the reach that it gets in the time frame that it does. And I think the other important thing for us that, that sometimes is overlooked potentially by the PR sort of angle, and, and when I put my digital marketing hat on, is a lot of the paid content allows us to track. 
So you can actually track a lot more activity about what people look at, what they click on, pages that they visit, and loop that into a broader marketing plan in terms of re-engaging those users later on. So it gives you some advantages, actually, beyond just the what the organic reach and, and, and those elements would, would allow you to do. And what, what was the impact uh, for that particular campaign? Because I seem to recall you used Facebook yeah, we used promoted fa posts. We used Facebook quite a lot, actually, and, and we used promoted posts quite a lot. But, and that was a, a, very much to do with one of the key objectives for the ECB and, and the T20 to uh, generate a younger audience um, for cricket tickets. So Facebook actually was the most successful, not just from a how we amplified content, but even when we measured the uplift in sales, the biggest group that we actually engaged with to buy new tickets as new customers were 18 to 24 year old males, which actually through other media channels for that type of sport is very, very difficult for us to do. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, just before about measurement. One, one, uh, one thing I did want to pick you up on in terms of that that uh, presentation that you, that you sure. gave is that I noticed at the time that you'd record an estimated reach from celebrity engagement across Twitter um, well, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram of over 4 million. But was that just adding up the total follower base? Because my concern is that there still needs to be a bit more you know, consideration for the yes. reporting. And I think you've got a point. Um, the, the reality about and it's one of those things where actually a lot of these platforms have developed in terms of what you can do from an advertising point of view much more quickly from, than what you can do from a measurement point sure. of view in many yeah. respects. And so what you find, not unlike actually some traditional media outlets, is that actually if you're looking at celebrity accounts, most of their data is private. So you've got to have, be able to look at aggregating those numbers together because there isn't anything out there that will allow you to show the overlap in the audience that you're actually getting, the number of people that you're reaching more than once, which actually if you look at many traditional media plans, if you're buying television and radio at the same time, no one else can do that either. But you can I yeah, sorry, no, please. can I just interject there? Yeah. But you can always look at impressions, right? Especially when you're applying paid media to something. So on both Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, you can look at real impressions, which gives you a much more accurate you can you can measurement. you can look at real impressions, but what you can't look at is the overlap. So if I do a comparison to a display advertising campaign on uh, banners or whatever it happens, the tracking behind that actually would allow you to show how many people you've engaged with across multiple sites on multiple occasions. So while you're getting the metric in terms of the gross impressions, you're absolutely correct. The actual ability to look at is it the same people doesn't actually exist yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to actually uh, give you a bit of support there in terms of your numbers rather than uh, disagreeing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think we'd... Uh, I mean, uh, from, my, from my perspective, I think that because I sort of wear another hat in terms of what you can see through some of the tracking technologies for more mainstream digital stuff like search and display stuff, the social side is it's actually closer to where PR is right now in terms of where the measurability is. And I think... The, the biggest challenge is actually going to be where most of the data you want to see, particularly when it comes to the, the it's actually more around the organic side and the celebrity type, type stuff where actually you will never get um, access to that data because it's not yours. Well, it's nice to be creating a little love in here between, <laughs> between the two Vicky, when you're putting a content campaign together for your clients, is there a set formula that you use or, or at least a recommended percentage of the budget allocated for paid amplification? So it's quite subjective, um, and uh, largely you'll be spending anything in between 10 to 30 percent of a of a budget on paid media spend. But that kind of uh, it's one of those how long is a piece of string yeah, kind of, of things because that's dependent on what the goal of your of your paid activity is, 
who, who the brand is and what point of maturity they're at in terms of their relationship with any given social platform. And then also whether they have the right to talk about something. So if you're trying to introduce a client into a completely new area that they really don't have the right to talk about or that they do have the right to talk about but it's really new for them, you're going to have to apply paid media in a smarter way to allow them to get any kind of impact in that area. And, and so you, it can be split between those. Yeah. Are you, are you finding, though, that it's a um, – is it a difficult – pitch to to convince clients to take this strategy or is you know how's how's that no no it's not difficult at all i think um we we have gotten to a point where clients are more aware of the fact that you you, you need to promote your best performing content with paid media purely because of the way that the pla platforms work from from an algorithm perspective now mm. twitter is just introducing the same thing um, and so, you know, there is an awareness of that and it's more about, okay, who manages it and how are you going to work collaboratively with a media agency versus should we do this in the first place? Yeah. And, and do you think, um, I suppose to both of you, we can finally put to bed this old argument of if it's paid for, it's not PR's remit? I mean, everything seems to be sort of blurring into one, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think the point Vicky made about... Um, where does I think clients are getting to the point where they understand they have to do it, but where does the responsibility lie and who executes it is increasingly a grey area. So we yeah. find with some clients where actually as we're producing that content, it makes a lot more sense for us to amplify, understand that we've got access to the data in real time to do it rather than have to send it across to a media agency, et cetera, et cetera. But there are still a number of clients where that buying piece because it's considered a media buy, because technically it is, mm. lives somewhere else. So I think that actually it's as a concept, I don't think that it, it's as tricky as it was maybe a year ago. But I think in terms of defining who does what and how they do it, that's where the, the grey areas seem to be a little bit more, certainly from our, from our point of view. Um, just a slight change of uh, topic, obviously still within what, what we're discussing here. But I, I read a really great blog post earlier this week on Stephen uh, Waddington's blog. Now, Wads is a good friend of the show. He was a guest on show six. If anyone wants to go back through the archives. Um but this week he got his 16-year-old daughter, Ellie, to write a, a post and it was called The Not-So-Secret Internet Diary of a Gen Z Teenage Girl, or Gen Z, however you like to pronounce it, um, which is... Now, I, I tweeted about it because I would urge anyone interested in, in what teens think of brands and social media to read it. And, and to do so, just go to wads.co.uk. That's uh, uh, Wads's blog um, site. Now, in that blog, Ellie said that Instagram is one of her favourite uh, forms of social media and the most popular among her peer group. And, and she made a great point about the fact that um, one of the reasons she likes it so much is that is the apparent lack of advertising allows it to stand out from other social media sites such as Facebook. And she went on to say that um, almost all the content you come across is personal as opposed to the hundreds of sponsored posts and spam videos that you have to troll through on Facebook. There's a concern and a challenge right there for you, wouldn't you I'm say? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but Facebook have announced that small to medium businesses will be able to be able to advertise on Instagram from September. So I think that that ride for her, unfortunately, might be be over quite soon. And, and I do sort of see that point, and I think that even if you look at the recent Facebook announcements and how they're treating video and different types of content and trying to reprioritise different areas in the newsfeed, everyone's still trying to figure out what they think the right balance mm. actually is, and they are probably the guys who have gone the furthest in terms of more paid content than anything else that's in the overall stream. So I think for all of them, that commercial imperative is one that they're going to have to work out in terms of the right balance between what they can commercialise and not pissing off their users to the point of, 
of what you've just described. Yeah. Vicky, what's your thoughts on that? I think um, it's, I'm not that surprised to hear that. And I think it's a, it's a trap that most of the platforms have fallen into at one stage or another. And it's all kind of dependent, again, on the maturity of, of, the, of the social platform. The, the newer, younger ones tend to be more popular with teenagers and younger because of that very reason. It feels like this secret space that the grown-ups haven't found out about yet. And the introduction of advertising into that just makes it seem like it's becoming more of a commercial kind mm. of grown-up space. So I'm really, I'm not surprised to hear that from her. Um, and I would support... Um, you know, the previous point on the fact that Instagram is not going to stay that way for much longer. Yeah. You know, they only have 100 people working in that team um, globally at the moment. And, you know, they're hiring quickly so that they can get more commercial support to make sure that those sponsored opportunities are being used more and more. Yeah. Well, I guess this leads nicely into other ways to pay uh, to use social channels to reach people like Ellie and yeah, but maybe in a more subtle way through paying influencers um, such as YouTubers. And I know that's a topic um, you, you were keen to focus on, um, Vicky. Now, I, I could we could talk about that for for an entire podcast and, and probably more. Um, but it's obviously it's important to look at when discussing um, sort of paid social too. One recommendation I would have for anyone uh, listening who, who hasn't quite got their head around this whole sort of area and how influential some of these YouTubers can be, and particularly for that younger audience, I would absolutely recommend watching a video that was premiered on The Drum in March, um, and it's available to view on YouTube. Just search uh, The Creators on YouTube and you'll find it. Um, and it follows Zoella and a few other YouTubers behind the scenes in, in terms of them creating uh, content and events that they attend. And it gives a great insight into the understanding of, of working with, with brands, but a real eye-opener um, to potential influences um, you know, that they have on their audience. I don't know if either of you two have seen that. But, but, but Vicky, what, what's your take on this whole area in terms of you know, cost to entry, the restrictions uh, you know, that you have as, as control? Because obviously these guys are, are in absolute control of their own content. So as a brand owner, you kind of lose that bit of control. Um, but also, again, you're starting to see more and more commercial messages being being plugged through that. What, what, what do you think on that area? I mean, you're, you're completely right. We could talk about this for hours on end, but it's, um, it's, it's been a really interesting space to observe over the past couple of years. And we've gotten to a point where we're still having the same conversations that we were like seven or eight years ago. And it's this idea that if you're working with um, an influencer, someone who has a, a, a large amount of influence online, um, you, you kind of have to let go of it. And whereas once upon a time working with influencers was definitively a PR-led piece of work where you would send someone a product and then you would let them review it, and there was always loads of kind of hesitancy around whether, you know, a, a, a normal person, in inverted commas, um, would be the right person to do that with, that conversation has evolved and the same challenge still exists. But only it's kind of moved into a marketing sphere now, and an influencer is perceived to be a content creator, and there's still the same hesitancy around whether, you know, giving a brief to an influencer and not being in complete control of the content that's produced off the back of that mm. is the right thing for a brand. So it's fascinating that we're still in that space. Um, and then you layer on the complexity of the fact that there's no real guidance around cost. Um, and you'll get some influencers who are being paid absolutely peanuts 
by brands to do lots of work and are being taken advantage of. Mm. And the flip side of that being brands who are paying extortionate amounts of money to have, you know, a mention in a two-minute video in um, a YouTuber's do, kind of channel. Do you think there is a danger that so, some of those YouTubers are becoming overexposed, though? Yes, totally. Mm. And, you know, it's like they are the they are the modern-day celebrities and pop stars yeah. um, of the younger generation. And, you know, just as a pop star could once suffer from overexposure and their popularity will wane, the same will be true of the YouTubers. Yeah. I think it's our responsibility as marketers to use the data and tools that are available to us to track people with real influence, not just the ones who are the biggest names, yeah. and not be so lazy and continually just using the, the same people yeah. time to time. has nodding away. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think it's quite interesting. We do an awful lot in the fashion space, which is the, the where that sort of paid piece becomes, becomes huge. And funny enough, I was sitting down this morning with the guys who are... are working on the brief where they can't actually physically speak to any of the influencers anymore. You actually have to talk to their agents in order to get anything kind yeah. of discussed, agreed. And when you get to that sort of point, you are well away, away from actually where we were a few years ago. I think the only thing that we've seen increasingly is there are certain sectors where that approach to anything scalable requires payment of some description and some form. But I would completely agree that it does feel a little bit Wild Westy in terms of the understanding of what value really is and how you ascertain what it what that is and how it should be paid for because some of the discrepancies that we see are enormous mm. um, and when you would compare that and we often put this alongside buying other forms of media because that's what we do um, that we would find that actually if you look at the relative reach and influence you think that will have compared to actually a really mainstream high-end fashion publication with a circulation of half a million and online readership of two million, we're often being asked to pay the same thing for a blogger that can access 60,000 people on a tweet and 50,000 on Instagram. It's a real, really interesting space about how you kind of understand whether value is being created or not, as the case may be. Yeah, well, as I said, I think we'll return to this this topic for a, and, and dedicate a whole podcast to it in the future. So, Farhad, <laughs> you, you just mentioned... Um, Fashion there as, as, as one of your clients. That's a nice lead into another question I wanted to ask you about one of your clients, uh, Reese, mm -hmm. uh, fashion retailer. Because um, in, in, in this instance, you, you've been using Outbrain, who position themselves as a content discovery platform, uh, to drive um, traffic uh, to, to Reese's blog. Yep. Um, but the ultimate aim of converting those readers of the blog to purchases on the site. Do you want to talk us through that campaign? Sure. So what we've been doing... Like lots of people, actually, they produce lots and lots of really nice blog content, which not a lot of people actually go and read on their sites. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work about understanding um, what pieces of content are really sticky on the site and using Outbrain as a, as a platform for distributing that. And there are really sort of two reasons for, for doing it. Number one, it's the contextual nature of the platforms allowing you to align with content that should be relatively similar to what people are looking for. So ideally hoping to create some kind of synergy with that and actually it's also a piece around if we were to try and distribute that content through other media channels the relative costs are, are very very high um, but I think the piece that we found very interesting has been because that's all happening in an online environment that we can track who's seen a piece of content and who hasn't and how they behave in terms of their buying behavior afterwards and we ran a big case study which basically said well actually if we were to compare someone seeing a Reese ad online as opposed to 
engaging with a piece of content and then seeing a Reese ad online, those people that bought for the first time would spend 36% more in their first transaction. There was a recent case study where Marks and Spencers have done something very, very similar and they came out at 24%. So I think they should give me their work because obviously we're better <laughs> than they are. Um, but increasingly what we're finding is it's part of that armory in terms of how you can use it to distribute content around that, around um, a lot of stuff that wouldn't necessarily be seen or just used via an email channel for people that were existingly on their database. A, and a great way to prove that content can... Absolutely, a great way and uh, of being able to prove that it, it has an uplift. Yeah. A, a lot of what we've talked about is consumer-focused. Um, what I'd like to ask both of you is what your experience is in terms of using paid social from a B2B perspective. And, you know, because that could be anything from pushing white papers, thought leadership reports, you know, general business updates or, or driving to company blogs as well. Vicky, do you want to... Go first on that one. So one of my biggest clients is Intel, and we work with them across both the B2C and B2B space. And um, in you know, alongside your kind of classic uh, PR and kind of comms and events work, we do an awful lot of content marketing. And the reason that we do it on the B2B space is that Intel is, um, you know, they are content first, and they believe that they can become... Um, well, they can uh, enhance their relevancy through storytelling. And so what we do as part of that is an awful lot of native advertising. So we look at the content that we create and we work with tools like Outbrain um, to make sure that our content is being seen in the right places, um, which is kind of similar to the, to the previous example, I guess, from, um, from Reese. But I think it's interesting that in the question, you focus on thought leadership reports and like white papers, which is really like classic B2B content. Yep. Whereas actually there's so much potential to actually tell far more um, kind of human insight-led stories that is that are driven by people's passions and interests, even from a B2B perspective yeah. than, than just looking at kind of drier, more traditional pieces of content. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, um, I was at a PR Week Internal Comms Europe event last week in Amsterdam, and um, a lot of the, uh, the case studies that they were showing was talking about um, creating stories from employees, but then using those, getting those employees to then share that content um, externally as well. So it was, so it was interesting where they were using internal comms uh, activity but making that um, public so that people got, more, like you say, more of a human interest to um, feel about the business as well. So yeah. there's, there's another different area, I suppose. But what, what, and, and in terms of platforms, what about, you know, do you do much within LinkedIn at all? Would you say that's, that's an area to go to? Yeah, I mean, from a B2B perspective, you cannot get more efficient in terms of um, both organic and paid social than LinkedIn. It's such a beautifully like, focused platform. Um, from that perspective, and the targeting is so valuable, um, right through from you know the first point of um, engagement through to, to actual action. So it's it's the place that we focus most of our effort on from a B two B perspective for sure. Okay, um, got a question here that was actually raised on Twitter by your colleague Farhad, uh, oh, Jim Hawker. Oh, great. Um, and Jim tweeted last month uh, from his handle, at Jim Jim Hawker, uh, I think it's about time PR um, Awards added a paid media category, and he went on to add that he thinks um, it's an emerging skill in the PR world. So what's your thoughts on that? Specific category or just part of the toolkit for any campaign now? Um, I don't know about specific categories, so to speak, but I think one of the things that I do see when I, when I see awards and I judge a few award entries is actually... 
sitting around those tables where it's you look at how many campaigns have an element of it and it's so heavily discounted by everyone that sits around that table as being somewhat unpure. It's <laughs> probably the best way to describe it. Um, so I certainly think a better recognition for particularly campaigns that are socially led in terms of what you're doing um, is overdue. But would I? I don't think anyone as part of the scale of the campaign or what they're doing in the paper is actually, it's more mechanic of delivery yeah. than anything else. And so I'm not sure I would. Uh, have a separate category right now. <laughs> okay. Well, listen. I'm, I'm conscious of time, and Vicky, we, we've got you joining on the phone, um, and, and I know you're 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 very busy today. So I'm gonna. Uh, I've got one final question for for you both, um, and that is that with so many social platforms to consider, and we've we've mentioned loads of them all, um, today, but obviously new ones launching all the time. Maybe if we could finish off with both of you, uh, you know, with your top tips for keeping across it all, aside from listening to podcasts like this, obviously. Farhad, do you want to go first on that? Um, there is only one way to keep up with it all, which is to read and be updated with all the things that are happening in the industry. I think there is always the point what, that you start thinking about with... I think the thing that we're somewhat lucky about actually being here is most of the new things start somewhere else, and you've got an idea of scalability and how well they'll scale before you need to play with them in any meaningful way. So things like Periscope, Meerkat, um, Snapchat and all the other things sort of coming out that you hear about that 60 or 70 percent of which disappear within the first three or four months. So I think actually the fact that most things come from beyond the pond, you've got a bit of time. Uh, and so as long as you're up to date with actually what's going on in the US predominantly for, for us. Um, you're able to keep on top of it. I think the complicated bit, actually, for a lot of platforms is figuring out what you can actually do with it and what's technically feasible once you've got there because they often are, as Vicky sort of said earlier, there's 20 or 30 people in the room somewhere. You're not speaking to any of them. So, therefore, you've got to be quite creative about figuring out how do I actually leverage this in a way that, that that's useful for us. Okay. And, Vicky, final thoughts from you? I think I... Um, sorry, but I have to agree. Um but I think in terms of trying to keep abreast of everything, the best thing to do is to divide and conquer. So not ever, unless you're a journalist, which I really miss about the fact that when I was writing, I had time to read everything. Um, you just don't have the time and the, the free time in the day to do that. And so if you can take focus areas, whether it's, um, it's sectors or it's different platforms, and have people dedicated to um, keeping keeping on top of the updates and what's happening, then you can kind of knowledge share between yourselves and have a group of people who are keeping an eye on what's going on. Mm, excellent. Well, that's um, that's really good. Thank you very much, uh, both you. of you, for, for joining me today. Uh, Farhad Kudaruth of 3Pipe and Vicky Chowney of H&K Strategies. Um, you can follow both my guests on Twitter. The Twitter handles are pretty simple to remember. It's at Vicky Chowney and at Farhad Koo. Um, and if you want to contact me about getting involved in these podcasts, you can reach me on Twitter too using at Russ Goldsmith. Uh, thanks again to the team here at Marketers for you see for hosting us and producing the show and for the next podcast i'm uh, thrilled to confirm that o2's director of communications and reputation uh, nicola green will be joining me here um, back at the studios here again at marketeers for you see to talk about social media's role in internal comms and now nicola was uh, recently named in the latest pr week power book um, so that's a huge booking for us and we're really pleased that she's given up uh, some time to join us of course if you want to find out more about the cipr social media panel you can follow us on twitter using at ciprsm and finally as i mentioned at the top of the show please do subscribe to us on itunes searching for cipr social media panel in the itunes store and rating and giving us some feedback should also help us up the podcast charts too thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>